first of three podcasts, NAC dance producer Kathy Levy speaks to British choreographer Wayne McGregor. Wayne sat down with Kathy on February 9th following the National Art Center debut of his work Entity, performed by Random Dance. This fascinating discussion covers topics ranging from his academic path to his choreographic influences to technology, including some previous connections to an Ottawa technology company and connecting dance studios across the globe. Well, we're here on the morning after uh, the performance of Entity, which was just sensational by Wayne McGregor's Random Dance. So thank, thank you. you very much for that performance. Thanks. We were delighted. We were really happy with the audience. And they the loved it, didn't they? Yeah, great. And this is our first uh, presentation of Random Dance at the National Arts Centre. It certainly won't be the last, but I'd love for you to go back and tell us, you know, where this all started for you. And Sure. Well, um, well I was born in 1970 in um, a very small place in, in Cheshire, which is outside Manchester. Um, called Stockport and um, I, I was a very kind of active child so I was always very very physical so I did gymnastics and um, I did lots of musical instruments and I was in loads of clubs and um, I, I was in the Cubs you know I was always kind of very curious and into lots of um, different things and I started dancing really about the age of seven because um, there were several reasons. Although actually my mum always corrects me when I say that because she says that I actually started with country dancing, Scottish country dancing oh. at school. But actually what's interesting about that, there's a big thing now in the UK that actually, because lots of the kind of the gymnasium spaces or the uh, assembly room spaces that we use for things like country dancing are becoming multi-purpose spaces, um, that actually lots of those things that we used to do as young people don't happen anymore in schools. And mm -hmm. So all those things about how one is able to kind of cooperate with people very early on in living, touching a, a boy girl touching very young, um, learning how to cooperate and all of those things that we know dance do so well, often now in schools doesn't have the opportunity to happen mm -hmm. because there aren't these collective spaces to be able to do it anyway. And those so things have been replaced by, replaced by yeah, I don't know with, what, technology, yeah, other technology or, or, or multi spaces that have to serve certain purposes. So mm -hmm. they're both a gym and a, uh, a teaching room and, and, and. And I so see. actually the, the time pressures on those spaces don't allow for those kind of collective exercises to take place. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's, if you think about it, you know, physical space, the space in which we need to do things and the space in which we need to explore our bodies has to be quite rich and you know um, this is a, anybody who's building new schools I just encourage them yes. always to think about that as, uh, as a very important very critical central point of kind of school living. Yeah it's but really I, true I mean I remember in my day doing dance as part of our gym curriculum which my kids don't do now. Yeah absolutely and, and even that. Same, same with me and we used to you know we used to have these very funny radio programs and um, a certain hour um, of a certain day of a week the radio would go on and it would be these um, kind of movement um, exercises that you could do along with the radio. So it was kind of, um, which is quite interesting because we've developed that later on with young people working um, virtually in teaching or working with DVDs as a teaching method or remote location teaching. So the way in which you can actually bring um, teaching ideas into remote locations I think is a really fascinating way. But I started with that, so Scottish country dancing, maypole dancing, all those things. And what's been very interesting about that is it's been very helpful for me when I've worked in opera, for example, because all of a sudden you've got a big chorus that don't necessarily have um, great dancing skills, very willing often, but don't often have you know, technical skills, but social dance forms, things like mm -hmm. that are really often very useful in a, and in a, a certain Mozart, period, in a certain period right, and all those right, things. Right. Um, and then in, in about the um, mid-70s, about 77, 
78. There were all those films starting like Grease and Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta <laughs> and all those things. And there was a massive disco craze, basically, yes. the same way that now, you know, it's hip hop or whatever, you know, so you think you can dance on TV. It's a massive hip hop uh, 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 kind of disco phase. And I really wanted to do it. I saw it and I, I, I kind of pleaded my parents to take me for dancing lessons and in those days the, um, you could do kind of ballroom and Latin American dance and disco you had to kind of do this you know this curriculum they were all together yeah they were all together so you would do that so I did that from 7 to almost 16 so I was teaching at 11 so I, I managed by 11 to get all my certifications really for teaching ballroom and Latin America at 11 years old yeah I you were it. teaching yeah yeah oh so my I was teaching gosh. my Little de- I mean, it was a little dance school, you know, it wasn't a massive thing. But, but I, still, um, but that's still. incredible. And the great thing about me, teacher, I had this really great teacher who was um, a very, what I would call, typical Bournemouth and Latin American teacher. She was quite eccentric, um, you know, lots of makeup, very massive false eyelashes, you know. But interestingly, was very against ballroom and Latin American competitions. She was really not into those at all. So I was never allowed to do them. I was allowed to do the show dances where you, uh, where it, when the uh, judges are deciding, you kind of perform an, exhi- uh, an exhibition dance, if you like. Okay. But she did not like the sense of competing. And one way that she kind of stimulated us, um, because we weren't competing, was to allow us to make up our own versions of those dances. So really, I would uh, imagine the first time I ever really started choreography was in that way. So if I were making a cha-cha-cha, there'd be certain variations that you had to have, um, you know, for, for the curriculum and for the syllabus, especially in examinations. But she would always let us invent new variations. Do you have a, do you have a memory of that being something that you immediately liked? Well, even I, loved, at that yeah, I loved it. So I, loved, I loved finding a different way of um, putting those steps together, basically. And again, they, it's become very helpful. Again, those social dance forms have been helpful throughout my career in terms of how you understand rhythm or music mm-hmm. or the relationship with music, the relationship with two bodies together. And even though now I've moved very differently from the physical language, actually some of those kind of core principles and having that sense of embodying rhythm, how having body, you know, ha- having rhythm really kind of assimilated in the body so that you can really understand it at a deep level in the same way that um, you know somebody who does Bharatanatyam dance might have that or Katak from a you know a very early age was something that I think was very rich. So there you are you're a choreographer at the age of 11 (laughs) or 12 13 but did you know what that was like was it also were you also seeing for example the Royal Ballet when they toured through your town or 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 did your mother have any sense of taking you to a formalistic kind of dance? No, so, I mean, basically what happened then, I got very interested in musical theatre and plays okay. and acting. And so I was in the Amateur Dramatic Society and did all of those kind of massive musicals. Um, and, and so Can you that, sing? Yeah. I, well, oh, so you're like a triple threat. Well, I you. was. I don't think I am anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, so I, I, I did all that acting and singing and, and, um, and dancing. Lots of musicals. And I, I really loved it. Did you that. get to do Grease? I didn't get to do Grease, oh. no, no. But all we right, did some, well. you know, great musicals, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, Westside story you know lots of the uh, amazing kind of in very big theaters actually so actually all that to do with stagecraft and how you run a rehearsal and all of those things I think I'm a kind of amateur dramatic I don't know if you have amateur dramatics yes absolutely. I, I mean they you know often they're kind of frowned upon in the professional sector and I think they're actually a, a phenomenal training ground oh, absolutely. and a great opportunity for everybody to be creative and have that kind of creative experience of the stage and I think some of the standard of the productions is in- really incredible and I agree with you and I also think that it really gives a place for children who aren't necessarily going to be big Broadway stars to 
you know, nurture that side of their personalities, which has to feed other things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I, I did all of that in my spare time. I didn't do any of it in school. Okay. And I did quite a formal education in school. So I did all my O-levels and I did, you know, languages and sciences and all of that. And I, for A-levels, I did English literature, history, economics, general studies. I didn't do any arts-based um, examinations at all. Because it wasn't offered or just because that wasn't where you were? I think it was offered, pulled. but I think my parents were quite strong believers in having quite a, a, an academic education and would support me. I mean, they were amazing. One of the great things, I think, about my parents, and they, they've been to every single first night that I've ever had, and they've always been incredibly you know, supportive of what I've done and given me a confidence to always try anything. They would say, just have a go, you know, just have a go. But they've also also really kind of supported this idea that actually it's good to have a balance between the academic and the kind of creative. And um, I think that's been extremely useful throughout my life. You know, I went on to do a degree in choreography and semiotics before I really started choreography properly and so you know it gives you a very particular sun and I'm not saying that's for everyone but I think that balance of the academic the way in which uh, academia teaches you to be rigorous in a different way from creativity has been really helpful and each of informs the other so mm -hmm. um, I did quite formal uh, O-levels and A-levels and then for the first time and I was quite old at this point I was about 17 I saw Rombert in Manchester so um, what was then Ballet Rombert now Rombert Dance Company uh, quite a lovely theatre in Manchester and I was taken to see this triple bill performance and I really I was in a state of shock because I'd never seen bodies behave in that way I'd never seen bodies do those kind of things and I I, I mean I was a bit lost to be honest I didn't really know what that was and it was strange and alien I didn't know how to read it but I found it very um intriguing and very exciting was it was it a mixed rep evening was this sort of Christopher Bruce era yeah it yeah. was it was a bit before then okay. but there was a Chris Bruce piece in that program okay. a Richard Alston piece it was a mixed I mean it was a mixed evening but I, it was just that these bodies seemed not necessarily to be narrative they were very pure form the the expression was you know one would say abstract but actually its impact on me was very strong it really drew me in um, and of course there was no singing and no words so really just pure pure choreography and at that point really I hadn't really seen the Royal Ballet I mean I'd seen a little bit of ballet on television but I wouldn't say, I'd never seen a live ballet performance and certainly no contemporary dance no modern dance and actually when you think about it at that period the early 90s the independent dance sector in Britain was just really burgeoning it wasn't a massive sector like it is now I mean we have 400 dance companies or something now oh in the UK God. So, you know, you, you can't help but fall over one in your local right. <laughs> your local town. But now, uh, but then, you know, it was a very, very different um, situation. So um, that was quite enlightening. And it was at a time when I was just about finishing my A-levels and deciding what I was going to go and do at university. And I'd applied all four uh, drama degrees. So in a range of universities, right. I was very interested in classical drama. And that's something that I would have um, gone into. But in that period when I went around all the universities and having seen this and having always done I came across this amazing new course that had just started at the University of Leeds, which was in choreography and semiotics. And um, it was part of a, a university where, where it was in this really idyllic location in the Yorkshire Sculpture Park called Bretton Hall. It was a very famous arts college, so there was music and drama and everything. You could op do options to do all of those things, but you could major in a particular thing. You could decide a little bit later when you did the major. But they did choreography as a degree. Now that was a complete revelation to me, you know, how Incredible. is it that you could actually study choreography in that way? Um, and that's actually the, the direction I took and that's actually the, the degree that I um, eventually did with 
other things. I did a thing called Dramatic Presentation, which is a brilliant kind of subsidiary course, which is all about the theatre of the Bauhaus and learning all about, you know, Oscar Schlemmer and architecture of the Bauhaus mm-hmm. period and all of those things, which have, again, been a kind of a constant fascination for me. Uh, just, just to backtrack for one second, I understand that also while you were doing these extracurricular activities as a young kid, you were also playing around with some computers in your home. That's true, yeah. And so just, just tell us about that parallel line, because I know that all feeds into uh, Wayne McGregor, the choreographer. I mean, that's interesting because I, I look at young people now working on computers and with technology, and it's so second nature. So that means so incredibly second nature. When you teach young people now to animate, they've got this they've got no fear of computers whatsoever. So they sit there and they open everything, they explore, they test, they push, they know they can't really break the computer. There's no kind of reverence for the computer at all. It really <laughs> is like having a ball that you would just throw against a wall. And they have that kind of ambition about how it is that they work with technology today. When I was growing up, computers were very, very new. And I was really, I think, probably the first generation to have computers at home. And those computers did very, um, very simple things. So you were able to do very simple kind of word processing on those computers, a lot of games. Um, but I remember spending hours and hours actually programming a computer. And what that meant was you got these books of code and you just used to read the code and type in the code into the computer and something would happen. So a little worm would go across <laughs> the bottom of the screen and eat an apple or you'd be able to play table tennis if you got the code right. But often what would happen is you'd sit there for in a really nerdy way for about three hours hours putting all of that code in and if there were of course any mistake it just wouldn't work so there's this kind of obsession of this is kind of like micro detail about making sure that the 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 thing that you did that precision instrument was really well done to achieve the thing that you wanted to see at the end um and then you know computers got a little bit more advanced at home bbc computers you started to do a little bit more homework um we had the first um i really remember this very clearly at school in secondary school the first language lab where actually you sat there with um headphones and a computer program to start to um work on your French skills. It actually didn't do me that much good, actually. And there was a lot of kind of too much social interaction with those labs at the time. But, you know, you can see how technology was starting to um, impose itself or influence itself on um, other aspects of living. So I guess all the, all the time I um, have been uh, a young person then working, I've had a computer in my life. So I've always been able to um, use computers, been interested in what computers offer, Um, And I've always felt it's kind of a a seamless relationship to who I am. If you think about it, um, you know, technology, the interface for technology is always the human body. So your your interface with it is always about how you touch the materiality of whatever the technology is you have. And you can see increasingly how we're getting more embodied technology. So even just the feel of the iPad, you know, the way in which the body responds to it and can touch it. It's a very kind of embodied experience. And I've seen that kind of development over the last kind of 20 years with technology. And so for me, there's a very clear and direct relationship between the body and things that the body uses, tools. We've always used tools. And I think computers are very much a tool that we always will use. But you, you, you talked about this sort of aha moment that you had when you went to see Ron Bear. Did you have that aha moment around computers too, in terms of how both, as I say, these parallel lines would really intersect? Or was it just always just part of how you approached this physical art form? Yeah, I don't think I did have that aha moment, partly because, I, as I say, you know, I was about 17 when I saw my first contemporary dance performance. So I'd actually had quite a few years of never of see, seeing anything like that. With computers, I always felt I had had some relate. You know, I had a very, you know, scientific calculator. It was always part of kind of the language of my life. And I think, you know, I, I read about other choreographers who've been very influenced, for example, by music. And music has always been a kind of a constant thing that they've kind of grown up with. And that's actually motivated and fueled them for their kind of artistic career. And I 
really feel that with computers. I've seen and I've always been in contact with computers in the same way that I've always danced, about the same time, actually, you know, seven years old, mm -hmm. had a computer about the same time, you know, I started dancing. So they've been kind of like uh, on, a, on a seamless kind of like parallel journey. Mm -hmm. But now we talk about, you know, choreographers who work with technology and yet, you know, you've really laid the groundwork. You've been you've been at the forefront of this from from the beginning. Quite yeah. naturally, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it was very natural. It was very natural for me in my first pieces to think about how the computer could be engaged in in um, the performative aspect of the show. So I was when even I even at university, even in this course at least. Yeah, 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 definitely. And you know, and also that kind of paralleled again, kind of the concepts of of understanding people like Merce Cunningham, a choreographer who I really love, and. Um, this sense of um, well indeterminacy initially, but then moving into computers and what computer software could do for bodies, and then you know in the early nineties you start to see things like life forms, the computer program that Merce yeah. invented and used really throughout the rest of his kind of like working life, and what that did to bodies. You, there was a much more of a rise in things like um, new media work, so. Um, not just dance, but theatrical work, which actually had media at its centre and an exploration of technology. And I think really in those early days of technology, it was about exploring the technology itself. Is that what you'd say some of those early pieces looked like for I you? Think definitely. And yeah. I think definitely. You know, you, you see the naivety in a way, because what you're doing is put the te putting the technology on stage and seeing how it works and sharing how it works with an audience. I mean, literally the first time I came to Canada was for a project um, that I did with a company that I think they were called Newbridge Technologies. They are, yeah. Yeah, and they um, they facilitated this amazing pro project for us, which was a, an ATM broadband um, link between two um, countries, between Berlin and Canada, where I was able to have dancers in one location remotely, that live. That was Le Group. Yeah, Le Group in Canada, where I was, right. and another group in Berlin live. And I would switch on my monitors and see the dancers in Berlin, and I'd be able to work with them. Now, this was way, way before Skype and all those broadband fast exchanges, and the machines were very big. This was really the first remote, remote location performances that were happening. At that point, they were developing those technologies for, for uh, remote meetings and stuff like that, so more like um, business opportunities. And it was really amazing because all of a sudden you have the body challenged to behave differently in a mediated environment. But the technology takes up so much time. How does it work? How do you make a piece that way? How is it that you can actually communicate with a dancer when you can't actually touch them? Why you can't all of a sudden hear this, the, even just the sounds around you when you're working with people? All of those kind of communication devices were totally new. But, just sorry, but can you, can you, can you relive for me that that moment when that idea came to you? Like like when you thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be fascinating if, was it something Newbridge suggested to you or was it you kind of No, going, it was something I, I wanted to do. It was, I, I had this idea about, well, how is it that now when you think about technologies and this possibility for communicating kind of seamlessly, is there any way we could actually have two studios working across the world at the same time? And if so, how could you do it and what technology would you need to be able to do it? So rather than it, I knew about kind of business meetings, conferences that could be right. worked in that way. And I thought, well, if conferences can be worked in that way, obviously art making could be worked in that way. So why not explore it? Um, but, you know, the, as I say, these experiments in the initial stages were, were very naive because you had to deal with the technology. The technology was no notoriously difficult. It broke down a lot. It spent a lot of time setting it up. You had many restrictions in terms of where you could be at a particular time. In those days, there was a lag in relationship to the sound and the image. So, for example, um, I would say something, but it would take a good period of time, maybe even up to a minute, 
for that to be communicated to the other side. So it wasn't instantaneous like it is now. Um, and Except so you still see people on the news, you know, yeah, like no, if they're, if they're, they're exactly. talking to someone else. Pardon, pardon. Know, you exactly. still see that. That's the thing. That's the difficulty yeah. with technology. Yes. So all of those things um, change and affect the way in which you make your pieces. And therefore, because you're spending so much energy on the technical aspects of it, maybe some of the content-rich aspects of it get lost because you're exploring the technology and what it can do. Um, but I found those experiments really, I mean, I, I went on to do several remote location performances all over the world over the next 10 years and did, you know, quicker and quicker versions of it uh, until eventually we did a project in UK schools where actually I taught from Sadler's Wells live into school. So this radio program that we talk about, it was the same, except for I was teaching live um, young people in many schools simultaneously. All over the UK? All over the UK, then. So we did a remote location performance in that way. And then I felt I, I, I'm still very interested in that, and we're going to use you know, remote location stuff when we can, but it's not now a focus. It's, it was a, a kind of a strand of activity that I feel that we got to the end of in terms of um, where, we could, wh where we could usefully get. But I think now, because of these new technologies like the we, for example, and embodied technologies, and what's possible with bodies in relationship to uh, remote spaces and what remote spaces might look like in the future, I think there might be a whole new set of um, questions that might need to be investigated very soon. When you started Random a few years before this, like uh, a few years before this, this Ottawa project, for example, was did, did you feel that it was going to be a company that was devoted to this marriage or this intersection between technology and movement? I think I did. I mean, I think I've got that space between doing my degree. I finished with a first class honours degree from Leeds. And actually... Bravo. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. On, on reflection, I think the, the course was, um, it was quite academic. Um, so I was working a lot with quite rigorous, you know, dissertations and thinking and critical theory and all of those things. And I felt at the end of it that my instrument, my body, wasn't as attuned as it really ought to be. And I felt that I needed to do a little bit of work on that. So as soon as I finished university, um, I'd been coming to America, actually, um, for the last four um, summers because I was working on one of the... We, it was called BUNAC. It was one of those Camp America programs where you... Um, where you go as a counsellor on one of those summer camps and teach. And I was teaching at um, a, a, a brilliant camp in the Pocono Mountains. I ran a, eventually ran the arts programme there, w working with young people with various learning difficulties right the way through to young people who were autistic and finding ways in which one could interact with theatre and dance with those young people. And what was interesting about that is you spent time with them. You were a counsellor, so you had a group of maybe five or six young people with learning difficulties. You had to look after them all of the time and do the teaching through through the day. So it's again, intense. it was a very intense and very mm -hmm. interesting way of thinking about maybe bodies and brains that didn't quite um, connect in a way that you had understood before and how is it that you could find ways of being able to communicate with them and have them have kind of very rich creative and rewarding um, experiences of making um, and because I got this connection with America I really felt that after my university course I wanted to come to New York because I was a big fan of Judson and um, all those postmodern choreographers like Merce um, uh, Twyla Tharp, Lucinda Childs, Trisha Brown, I loved all those choreographers, that was my real passion by that point um, and I wanted to come to New York because that was the centre of where all that was, I remember the day I kind of 
touch the door handle of the Judson <laughs> Church and watch performances in there. Incredible. And I came to New York and I studied at the Jose Limon School, took as many classes as I could, as many places as I could. And it was a time in New York where you could see the Graham Company outside in the park for free. I remember seeing um, Cunningham in the park with John Cage conducting and Cunningham dancing. You know, all of these yeah. extraordinary things that you could do for free of yeah. very little money. Yeah. Um, actually, at the Lamone School, you could take out the bins and have a free class. I mean, you know, there was lots of ways in which you could trade to be able to do things. Sure. It wasn't all about money. And I stayed for about a year and did lots of, I saw lots of things. And it was absolutely really incredible. So by the time I'd finished that experience, I came back to London with a very youthful kind of arrogance and decided I wanted to form my own company. There wasn't anything in the UK at that time that I felt really compelled to want to join. I don't even if I'd been good enough to join any of them anyway and wanted to start my own thing. And so I made a very short piece, um, which was... 20 minutes called Zeno 1, 2 and 3 with a group of friends that we performed in a, in a programme at the Resolution Festival at The Place and The Place is a small experimental theatre in London that really promotes and advocates young, pe uh, young, young choreography um, or and, and very experimental choreography and that was the first time I'd um, made anything in kind of in really in a professional context. And it got picked up very quickly, didn't it? It did, but it was funny because, you know, you, you come back to London and you think, well, how am I going to live in London being a choreographer? How am I actually going to be able to make money? How am I going to actually live? And so I got this job, which was called a dance animateur. And it was the first dance animateur in London. Wow. And this animateur job was, the, the idea is you go into a, a, a local community, and my community was actually in East London. It was a place called Redbridge. And you animate dance activity. And so your job is to go in there and stimulate dance activity across the whole community, so not just with young people. So I would do lots of very um, interesting things, obviously in schools, but also with seniors, with older people. I ran a, a regular tea dance on a Thursday afternoon, so back to my ballroom in Latin America, where I would have all these over-70s come in. And what was really interesting and really a, a really salutary lesson for me about that was the I would do this tea dance and we would I would encourage them to make up their own versions of the waltz. And it was very interesting to see how they would respond to that and how creative they could be, and it was incredible. But the first time I ever heard about William Forsyth was from this 70-year-old um, lady who used to always come to the tea dance who said to me, have you seen William Forsyth? The choreography William Forsyth. I said, no. She said, well, you really ought to. It's on at the Opera House. It's on at the Royal Ballet. I've just seen it. In the middle, somewhere elevated is the name of the piece. <laughs> You really have to watch it. It was amazing. So again, it's just one of those things you never know in life where information comes that's going to actually take you down a particular So you path. went, oh, obviously. Of course I went. And actually, it was the first time I was in the opera house ever. Wow. First time, actually in the opera house. I even remember the seat that I sat in. Oh my God. Were you um, close? Off to the, I was close, but off to the side. Okay. So it was a, a funny angle. And I remember seeing the Forsyth. In, Did you know he was in the hall manipulating the sound? I didn't. No, no. Incredible. I wish I had. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, more recently over the last few years, I've got to know him. And um, it's been a very big influence again to see bodies behave like that, even in that context, and then to see his incredible company. Did you get to tell him that story? I did tell him that story. Yeah, I did. He liked it. I'm sure he did. Um, I'm sure he and did. it was it, it's it's inc it's incredible to see something that you're not familiar with. It's disconcerting because you you've got two options, right? You can either completely reject it and say, oh, that's not for me. Or you can just be unnerved for it for a while and live with those very unsettled feelings until you grapple to try and understand it. And still, when I see Forsyth's work, I sit there and I 
twitch and I fidget and I move and I huff and I puff and I just don't <laughs> understand how things in a way later can be that perfect. I have a piece of his, he's got this incredible piece called Quintet and you look at it and you, you look at it and it, it couldn't be a more perfect object. And it's, you know, when I watch things like that, it often makes me want to give up. I've also said this to him. It often makes me want to give up on the day. I look at it and I go, you know, how could you just make choreography when there's something like that in the world? And then the next day I always feel, you know, I want to make something of that quality. I don't want to make the same thing, but I want, and it really motivates me. And that's why I love going to watch dance. I mean, some choreographers don't like watching other people's choreography, but I am a big, passionate follower of dance. I go and see as much as I can. And when I go, I always hope that it's going to be this incredible, brilliant thing. And more often than not, I always get some surprise or something that really stimulates me. And I think that's why I'm still so passionate about dance, because I still love lots of the things that I go and watch. And the things that I don't really like or don't feel a connection to there's always something in it that teaches me something about what I do do you do you have um, a, a different reaction to sort of this current well it's, it's not even current anymore but the the sort of sense of non-dance as they say in France or this very conceptual work you know like like people seem to have forgotten um, the the early Judson Church you know walking on stage with a vacuum cleaner and you know yeah. this whole sort of debate about is this dance you know we were talking about this last night after your show because last week we have Dave St. Pierre and a couple of people were like is that dance you know because it's very Jan Fabre-esque in its yeah. in its uh, in its um, theatricality and then we see your work last night which is so physical and so of the body but do you how do you react to seeing work that is really, I guess, not really about the body moving on in the space. Well, well, I love it because I love how choreography, the principles of choreography can be applied across lots of different forms of intelligence. And I think if I look at something like Jerome Bell or Boris Sharmatz or Marina Abramovich even, you know, you get a sense of uh, body and work and space and relationships. You get a sense of choreography, but in a very different way. And I think it challenges you to think differently about what is the body? What's the capability of the body? What's humanity? How's humanity expressed in the body? And I think these things are very important. I think it's very important to have a continuum of kind of dance practice, if you like. I think it's, you know, I'm not a big advocate of all dance looking the same. I think what's really rich about it is having, having the diversity and starting to understand difference and actually starting to sharpen your own kind of critical f uh, facility to be able to appreciate as much the visceral, very kind of impactful um, bodies moving in space as it is something like Jerome Bell taking on and off <coughs> his T-shirts, you know, and, well, actually, what does that mean? And I think they're very, very connected. And I think if you can see both and watch both or, or all of that sense of continuum, you start to be able to pick out themes and ideas that are actually current in all of them. And actually, there's a sameness to all of them, they're thrust off into some of them you, in an unexpected ways. You get connections in really unexpected ways. And I think that's the great thing about the art form that we love, dance, is that actually that diversity allows us to see really different facets of, of humanity, of the, of the world in which we live. So you, 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 you do this piece at the place, John Ashford, the producer there, is completely enamored, sort of picks you up, if you will, gives you this great Well, place. he wasn't completely enamored. What was really funny, and again, <laughs> this, this shows you the power of producers, in a way, and what was very oh, no. funny is, no, no, in a good way, in a way, he said to me, look, you know, I, I thought that piece was really strong. I think half your dancers aren't good enough, and remember, these are my friends at this right. point. Right. Half your dancers aren't good enough, and it's too long. I want you to make it half the length and for only five dancers. And I thought, how, you know, that's not how it's supposed to be. You know, I'm an artist, you know, again, in my early 20s. How <laughs> dare he tell me these things? And he said, if you do that, I'll send it on a 12-city European tour. 
And I went, oh, okay. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll give that a go. All so of a sudden, I, those friends exactly. were in question. <laughs> those friends were friends for you? a while. They have now, but it took <laughs> a while. Oh, dear. But actually, it's interesting. I mean, you know, what that teaches you, I mean, I think having a proper dialogue with the people that watch and feel passionate about your work is really important. Was well, that good advice then in I the think, end? I think what was good advice is to look at, look at the object that you've made and look at it critically with critical eyes, you know. Yeah, and I, I really do that now. It, it, it is a funny position because, you know, when you're not the choreographer, but you're the person commenting on the choreography, there's a certain sense of the inside and the outside. And, you know, John famously is uh, absolutely not uh, concerned about, you know, his opinion being his opinion. And no. that's what's going to make it a better piece. But, but I think what's really good about that, and it's, it's slightly different from critics and how critics write, is somebody like John Ashford or somebody like Alistair Spaulding, who's the director of Settlers Wells, what you get with them is always an honest opinion. Absolutely. And because the bottom line is that they're really supporting you as an artist and really supporting your work, that's, you know, a constant they're not going, oh, just because I don't like this piece, I'm not going to support you next This is time. what I was going to say, exactly, because they're there to fuel. They're fueling They're part it. of yeah. the, they're a cog in the wheel. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. actually, you know that actually when they're saying something to you, they're saying, it, you know, for a very honest reason, in the same way that both of those guys who I've mentioned who, who happen to be great ambassadors for my work, but also people I really trust, will also say, I really didn't get that piece. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you were aiming for. Um, I, I can see there's lots of interesting things in it. But and I think it's very, uh, a very good uh, relationship to have with people and I think you know what I love about them is they don't pick up and drop artists season after season they go I'm interested in your development as a choreographer and you might be going through some quite strange phases that I don't quite understand and actually are quite difficult for my audiences so maybe even affect ticket sales but actually I'm interested to see where this work is going and you feel this absolutely kind of massive commitment to it and absolutely. I really respect that and I therefore I love to engage in the dialogue yeah you know well that's good and, and I certainly emulate those those gentlemen that you've mentioned and others like that and and it's I think it is a very important role and I think it also breaks down the sort of sense of oh the producers have all the power well in fact you know, we're here, as I say, as a cog in the wheel to support the work of, of people like yourself. Mm, and so. so the fact that he could then turn around and send you on a 12-city tour is yeah, quite absolutely. phenomenal. Yeah, do, no, you remember, do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what that was like? It was great. Like? I mean, it was it was really great. It was quite scary because, you know, it was it, what was interesting about it, and it was a thing called Banque d'Essay at that time. Oh, it was yes, a kind of a structure that, yeah. where actually you also were faced with other young creators from other countries and toured with them in a triple bill or a quadruple bill. It was a great program. So actually it was a great program. So I met people like Larry Bot there and mm -hmm. some interesting people who've kind of continued, you know, continued to work. And we go to very interesting theatres and you, the response in each of the theatres was very different. And actually the very first time I came to Canada actually was because I came with the solo version of that show to Tangente in Montreal and did a very kind of short excerpt there. So you have this kind of like possibility to connect with theatres and audiences that you really have no relationship to. And then John followed that on. So what he did then was he made me the first resident choreographer at the place who hadn't trained at the school. So the place has London Contemporary Dance School. Right. And he insisted that I become resident choreographer. I shared his office. When my computer got stolen, <laughs> he bought me a new one. Oh when I had gosh. no money for a poster, he came in with a load of posters one day. I mean, you know, this is a guy who really kind of so passionately believes in the artist that he believes in that he'll do anything for them and still now we have a great relationship I'm now on his airwaves um, board yeah what's interesting for our listeners to know is that even though he's retired from the place the man has not stopped working he's and he has this fantastic working. project yeah. airwaves which supports young choreographers and there's a big showcase coming up in Ljubljana which we're going to go and check out and you know when John says to somebody like me you must look at well, you, you know Hofer Schechter yeah, I have yeah, a look you, a you look. know it's just incredible but it's important you know it's important to
should have champions in your Absolutely. life. And I think it's important for young people at school to have a champion in school. I think it's a, really important for dancers to have champions. It's really important for choreographers to have champions. And I think as many people, you know, if you can build that relationship, that quality relationship with people who champion the work, it's really important. It really does feed an artist and it really makes the artist feel that they can really take the risks that they want to make and they're not making pieces for promoters or to please an audience or for any other agenda other than exploring something about themselves and the ways in which they want to make and I think it's really critical. That's all for this edition of NEC Dance Podcast. Join us next time for part two of the conversation with Wayne McGregor. Please send us your comments and questions. You can email us at necpodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NEC podcasts by visiting necpodcast.ca. There you will find past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Until next time, this is Alary Evans saying goodbye from Canada's NEC Dance. Yeah.